0: Welcome to episode 27 of The Professor and the Hack. I'm Hugh and I am indeed the hack. And with me is the professor, Peter Van Peter van Onsen. I can barely see him because he's behind this pile of, of, of shopping bags. I mean, really, <laughs> really, Black Friday, Cyber Tuesday, you have surpassed yourself, uh, PVO.
1: Merry Christmas. There's Merry Christmas. so much shopping to do at this so time, time of year. Isn't everyone doing it? So
0: much shopping to do. Oh, the tears stream down my face. No, it matters though, doesn't it? Because we're in a really weird time of... Of the year, and uh, because there's a couple of things going on with finance, we've about to get the budget mid year update, as they call it the mid year update, because it's a financial year happening mm. in December. There's a sense things are weakening a little bit, and these sales, which are supposed to bring forward billions of dollars in pre Christmas stuff, we haven't got the numbers yet, but they're going to matter about where Australia feels, how anxious it is about money, spending, jobs and all that stuff.
1: And that perception is as significant in terms of its effect on the economy going forward as whatever the reality of what we find out is when it comes to retail trade figures and uh, how people's shopping habits are going. We have to be careful to be aware of the distinction and, and both can be bad, but the possible distinction between traditional retail sales, which are in free fall anyway because of the internet age that we're in and overall spending patterns, which can include new spending uh, rather than the traditional shopping spending. But the implication seems to be that both are struggling at the moment because people are worried. You know, people are worried about where the economy is at, uh, where their job security is at as well, Uh, and it might be more of a Grinch-style Christmas period than usual. I was talking to some
0: retailers at, at the weekend or retail analysts, I should say, including uh, Russell Zimmerman from the Retailers Association and mm. some key people from Deloitte and other analysts because that's how I like to spend my weekend. And um, <laughs> one of the interesting things is the how these uh, sort of social trends about spending are actually not just hashtag activism. They are flowing through. So ideas about, say, just buying less or being more <clears throat> mindful about uh, how you spend in the supply chain as to whether if you're buying a T-shirt, uh, people are starting to think, you know, did this come out of some Bangladesh sweatshop where people are getting paid cents in the in the day? Um, so so these sorts of things, particularly the just buy less thing, um, lower your footprint, all that kind of routine, It's not just a slogan. It is starting to flow through into retail and that matters because so many jobs are are tied up in that sector.
1: And the government wants people to be spending. I mean this is almost the paradox of it. They need people to be spending. They need that confidence in the economy as well as that cash flow through in the economy. However, uh, like it or not, people are in a sense doing their own individual version of what the government is trying to do at a macro level which is tighten the belt. Uh, and so we've got all these forces pulling in different directions. The government wants people to spend, which is a confused message with it saying that we're clamping down on spending. Uh, some economists are saying they want the government to spend because they want the stimulus as well to help with the economy. The government says, well, we're doing enough of that on infrastructure spending. We can't afford to do it via fiscal stimulus. You've then got the political rhetoric that gets thrown into that, the Prime Minister at the vanguard of this, but the Treasurer too, about this idea that we're not going to panic as a government and spend too much, well, people individually hear that and say, okay, well, we too need to perhaps tighten uh, our purse strings. And that comes at the same time that we are reminded, even though the budget is apparently returning to surplus, we're reminded about the level of private debt uh, that people are carrying. And that has its own individual impact on how much people are going to spend this Christmas festive season uh, as well. Yes, because spending at Christmas flows through to company tax. Mm-hmm.
0: It also flows through to income tax. 1.3 million Australians make their primary living from retail. 1.3 million. It's an amazing one, figure, isn't it? One in 10 Australian workers is making their money out of retail. And if you take the number of jobs, for example, in coal mining, uh, if you listen to Matt Canavan's own version of the figures, and others would give a lower figure. But Matt Canavan, the, the Minister for Resources, who obviously is a big spruker for coal, um you know, proudly says there are 44,000 jobs in Australian coal mining. Uh, And yet you compare that with the retail sector at 1.3 million, it shows really where the jobs are uh, in the economy. But retail and retail confidence, spending confidence matters uh, so far across the country. And as you say, we've got this budget, um, official budget update that's coming. When does it come, by the way?
1: Uh, there's no set date, but it's usually midway through the December month. So they like to wait till after the final parliamentary sitting week, which of course is the first full week of December, and then they tend to dump it out pretty quickly, often the next week. And so this
0: is the one which is supposed to confirm that we are into uh, a budget surplus again uh, for the first time since I think 2007. Uh, and this is going to be the jewel
1: in the crown of Josh Frydenberg as a treasurer and also the Scott Morrison government. Which tells us everything that's wrong with politics, doesn't it, Hugh? I mean, look, yeah, sure, we're going to hit a formal budget surplus for the first time in however long, but... It's the equivalent of applying the handbrake to a car at the same time as the accelerator when people are saying we need to spend more and people need to spend more and the economy needs to be stimulated. Look at how bad things are. Look at how low interest rates are. Interest rates only go low because the economy is sagging. And at the same time, you've got the government running around with their undies on their head exclaiming how great it is that they're about to hit this budget surplus. These are such different things economically. However, politically, they're sort of almost lumped in as though they are one. It is funny, isn't it? Because
0: one of the reasons that came out in a survey as to why people are not spending so much is because interest rates are so low. Mm. And this has been confirmed by the Retailers Association and their own finding. Now, this is kind of – it almost makes you weep because the purpose for lowering interest rates – is to stop people saving. Is to, yeah, stop, no value stop people <laughs> saving, but also to um, make money cheap, exactly uh, so that people can feel confident in borrowing without taking a lot of expensive debt on to go off and put something on the credit card or whatever. It Don't might
1: be. worry about putting extra into reducing your home loan because interest rates are so low; you're not getting badly hit by interest only rather than principal payments on your home. So spend up, people. Help stimulate this economy. Of course, the irony is, Hugh, if people do take that advice, then that puts upward pressure. On interest rates, yeah, but but that's it. You want to
0: simulate some people to go and do it, but but the interesting thing is, is that the people have changed. The, the mentalities have changed since the days, you know, fifteen twenty years ago, where with interest rates go down, everything, thank God, I've got money to spend mm. again. Whereas now the signal they get is, gee, they keep dropping interest rates. The economy must be weaker than I thought. Uh, that means that my job is more vulnerable than I thought it might be. Uh, my business that I might be working for might be more vulnerable and so therefore um, I had better not spend. I better keep it socked away for that rainy day which is surely coming. So all the levers you pull on get the opposite effect at the moment. It is, it is kind of weird. But I'm going to take issue with you to a certain degree respectfully only because I'm plug stupid. And to me, getting back into surplus over a cycle, we've been a long time since we've had a budget surplus, Obviously, the GFC had a huge, huge impact on that when we are running, you know, $40 uh, billion-plus deficits. We're now back up into into a surplus. To me, as a kind of an old suburban fiscal conservative, that seems like good politics and good management of the economy. Convince me that it's not.
1: Okay. Uh, The reason it's not in my view, and don't get me wrong, politically I see what the government's doing. So I see the value politically in returning to surplus. And I'd even go a little bit further and see the value, which I think is partly what you're alluding to as well, culturally in returning to surplus, sending the message that government isn't going to, if you like, waste your tax dollars. So I can see the value of it there. And I can also see at one level, the economic value with having had rising debt to a point where we didn't expect it when you go back to the pre-GFC period and the fact that we had no net debt then and now it's gone up considerably over that time, even though the overall debt levels aren't that high by international standards, I can nonetheless see the value in stopping that debt accumulation and therefore starting the slow journey of paying it all back. So with all those caveats about why I can recognise the value of a return to surplus, here's why I just don't think it's fundamentally that important right now. The economy is sagging and governments, as long as they don't just dig holes and fill them back in again as a way of employing people to do something rather than something of value, having spending which results in two things. One, stimulus of itself, as long as it's somewhat valuable stimulus, is a necessary evil when the economy is low in its growth pattern as it currently is. We have low economic growth. The other value is that, The right type of spending, if it's well honed, as long as it can be relatively quickly done, can have massive productivity value as well. Now, what does that mean? Those two things combined mean that you can actually grow your way out of debt. Let me put it this way. India, comparing Australia, India is always fraught with some difficulty, but India as a developing country has had rising debt in gross terms, just the dollar value of its debt. It has had rising debt since World War II – Almost year on year, every year. However, its debt as a percentage of the national GDP has declined almost every year, year on year. In other words, by stimulating growth through running budget deficits, India today actually has less debt than it had in previous years gone by because, as a proportion of the economy. As a proportion of the economy, because it has used that debt to keep growing. So, for example, Politicians, when they want to make a political point, they say, Oh, we've got hundreds of billions of dollars of debt in this country. That's not a good thing, sure. But if the economy is growing because of that accumulation of debt, if it's so well at spent rate. at a higher rate, then we can actually have year on year, our debt can go from, these are made up figures, 200 to 220 to 240 to 260 billion. But as a percentage of GDP, again, made up figures, it can go from. 20% to 18% to 16% because that debt is of such value to the growth of the economy that it's worth running. Now, the issue, which I know is what you're thinking and a lot of Australians think, governments don't do that. Governments spend badly a lot of the time and therefore the we, we they spend it on recurrent expenditure. This is the key point. Don't just accumulate debt by letting public sector wages get out of control or by Using it on things which are just what we call recurrent spending. Use but, it on or putting, big projects, or, or putting money to raise new start. Well, the, but that some that's one that divides economists. Actually, it's quite interesting because they some say there's productivity advances in that. Others say that that there aren't. But certainly, if it's spent on things like the right infrastructure, for example, or the right reforms, which are going to improve health or education provision the things that then help stimulate the economy or targeted for example through business incentives which might result in tax cuts which mean higher debt because there's less income flowing in if those things can stimulate the economy in a way which means that instead of only growing at 1.5% we grow at 2.5% you can take on a lot of debt if you can make that debt work to get growth from 1.5 to 2.5% for example
0: i 'm not making an argument against the rise in new by the way, I think it should go up, but uh, but with your as you say, there are difficulties in comparing our economy with india 's but but let 's point to those difficulties. Uh, we have what is essentially a mature economy, it is a fully industrialized, westernized digitized economy How do they uh, get growth in and it? and India is still if you 've traveled there recently, they still have you know donkey carts in the countryside. there are still people um, en masse harvesting wheat. Uh, by having hundreds of people in the field, we, we're a field where a combine harvester will do that you know, with enormous levels of efficiency, that they are a different economy. And um, and, and I, I I worry about the notion. If, look, if you look at the debt, one of the arguments for starting to pay down debt, and we've got a long way to go with that, is that one of the costs that goes on to the budget is I think it's now $19 billion. Interest payments. Uh, just purely on interest payments on debt. Now, if we're not going to pay off that debt in a hurry, but... If you did, that is a substantial chunk of change to put into something else. So, uh, this is why I'm I'm seeing a lot of argument around at the moment from economists saying, "Look, that notion of having budgets and surplus is old-fashioned economics. Everything is different now."
1: Let me put it another way. Let me put it in the in the personal example way. I won't use Westpac as the example for the kind of shares you might want to buy, but let's let's say Combank, for example, a really good dividend-providing company that is blue chip, okay? If you are a ComBank loan holder as well as a ComBank shareholder, you are arguably, well, not even arguably actually, you may well, if your credit is good enough, be better off to take out a million-dollar loan on your home to access shares and buy ComBank shares. So you take out a ComBank million-dollar home loan and pay something like, you know, 2.8% interest on it. And with that million dollars, you buy ComBank shares and get a 5% dividend return every year. You're actually going to make money. There's tax on that though, isn't there? Again, that's why there's there's all the caveats about the nature of what your income flows are and the tax effectiveness. But for example, doing it on an investment home, you can then double down on that tax value because you've got negative gearing as well. The interest rate will be slightly higher on an investment property than a home loan, but you buy a million dollar investment property at let's say a three and a half percent home loan, uh and you you can then you know or you can take out an extra million dollars against it Put it across into stock. There are all sorts of ways. You've got to get the tax right. This is not tax advice. Oh, tax we should advice make it clear. PVU, no, 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 tax, no tax advice is being no, offered sorry, in this sorry. podcast. I, I'm,
0: I'm cutting short this podcast just to make a quick phone call to the <laughs> to the Commonwealth Bank. yeah, a million dollars. Yeah, put it on, put but, it on red, put it on green. But you see, black.
1: but you see my point. And, yeah. and also the tax isn't actually that bad on dividends. Again, no tax advice being offered in this podcast. But the tax <laughs> is not that bad on dividends because usually uh, those dividends are fully franked. So the company tax has already been paid. So you're only paying the difference between the top marginal tax rate and the company tax rate, which is less than 20%. So when you consider that you can get, and I said a 5% dividend return, often it's more like 6% as a dividend return. If you're only paying 2.8% on your home mortgage, even with the tax not being as effective as you could otherwise do it with fully frank dividends, you may well be better off. Now, don't get me wrong, it's risky business because if your home loan, if your home crashes, if interest rates go up, you, know, you can find yourself caught between two worlds. But I only use that example not to provide tax advice but to make the point that carrying debt can have enormous benefits as long as you don't go, great work, I've got a million bucks that I've thrown against my home, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to buy a boat. Uh, I might start going out to the nice restaurants. You know what? The family, we haven't had a uh, tens of thousands of dollars holiday to Europe, to South America, to North America. Let's go out and spend it. That's the equivalent of recurrent spending where you've then just blown it and you've now got the extra debt. If you invest it wisely, then you can actually be better off carrying debt. Folks, this is why
0: PVO lives with a view of Sydney Harbour and I live <laughs> with a view of my neighbour's washing. We're going to take a short break and uh, come back. G'day, Sandra Sully here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you're looking for more to listen to, head over to Short Black with me next. I talk to all kinds of amazing women who are making a difference. Good women, great chat. Welcome back. This is uh, part two of episode twenty-seven of the Professor and the Hack. You've just had some excellent financial advice. No, you Please, haven't. No, you haven't. Please no financial
1: it. advice contained <laughs> in this podcast. It
0: to the letter, and um, and when the lawsuits come, uh, we're indemnified the is- by
1: ten, aren't we? I'm sure we, we must be. This is a ten. I'm getting nods all around the room, so that's that's confirmation. Yeah, good luck with that one. Yes, his uh, his uh, his address is uh,
0: no. Um, uh, <laughs> It's been really interesting. Uh, the legislative race to the finish line, Medivac bill, which the government is so determined to get sorted out.
1: They're trying to get um, Jackie Lambie over the line. Don't you love it that their biggest ticket policy item is actually not a policy, but it's to remove a policy?
0: It is interesting, isn't it? And it's it, well, it's all it's, it's national security. It's not about anything else. It's national security, according to the government. Uh, and this is to try to get rid of the bill, which uh, uh, in her brief time in politics Karen Phelps uh, Mm. sponsored, which was to allow uh, a mechanism by which uh, people on Manus and Nauru, should they have a couple of doctors, say that they need to get medical attention on the mainland, they can have it, and the government gets limited control over their ability to have that. Um, The government wants to get rid of that, saying it's national security. What are the the justifications in this argument and how likely are they to get it up?
1: Well, their argument Mm. is that the Medivac bill does one of two things and and one argument I think is stronger than the other. The strongest argument is just simply that the full power of decision-making should be left in the hands of government. They're the elected... Personnel put in the position of making public policy, and and you are taking at least to some extent that public policy decision making out of their hands and putting it in the hands of medical experts. Now, a lot of people say that's fine because where it is a medical public policy decision, medical experts should be making that decision. But I think that's not their, Peter Dutton exactly. Yeah. But I think that's the government's strongest argument, even though I don't entirely agree with it, the reason well, well, being they say that they em- take on medical advice but they still make the call. And and their
0: argument is, is that they are activists who happen to be doctors.
1: Yeah, I'm not sure how accurate any of those assertions are. However, I see the merit logically as a piece of public policy. The weaker argument that they've long run, and they continue to run even though the facts stream in another direction, is that the actual usage of the Medivac laws is causing problems and will cause problems and has caused problems. Well, the evidence so far at least is that it isn't causing problems and it hasn't been misused. So the, that only leaves their argument what that it the, may what be what misused the penis, one day. What about uh,
0: the, the self-inflicted penis enlargement argument <laughs> that somehow leaked its way into the newspapers and yeah. that this had then become the subject of a, of a medi- medivac? Well, and so <laughs> therefore the taxpayer is paying for some man's attempt to increase the size of his organ. And, 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 and this is the kind of thing which... Which aggravates me about the process is that these stories, which are fabulous tabloid fodder, get leaked off to friendly newspapers and, mm. and they become headlines and they have a life of their own. But they're not the kind of thing that tends to be seriously repeated in the uh, in the political and legislative process, which suggests to me there is a bit of makeup. Going exactly.
1: On. Look, my what as soon as you started using that example, which I'd seen as well, my first thought was that's the exception that proves the rule. You know, like I- every system has exceptions that prove the rule. You don't shut down parliament because you have one MP caught rotting. You don't shut down parliamentary entitlements and expenses because, and it wouldn't be one, but because a few parliamentarians misuse them. The same thing goes with shutting down the entire Medivac system, which is designed to provide the kind of healthcare that asylum seekers deserve just like the rest of us because one or two bad eggs try to misuse it. And by the way, because it gets exposed, get caught and then the loopholes get closed. So I I don't buy that kind of argument. I think that's a classic reactionary argument.
0: So what about the argument that um, over time, because of the nature of where these people are, they are going to wind up with medical issues which are going to require being resolved in Australia and mainland hospitals. And so therefore it becomes... uh, in effect a an end to the pacific solution. Well then then, and so then therefore the boats can resume.
1: Yeah. Look I would say therefore so be it. You know, I mean, what you keen on the boats resume? Well no no I think of it this way, if our system of offshore processing as a if you like design principle results in people having enormous medical problems, mental and physical, if that is a creation of it, if fixing that kills off the system, then guess what? The system deserves to be killed off. I've got a really simple way, Hugh, that we can stop the boats. We just choose as a society not to do this because we think it's wrong. We just mow them all down. Machine guns? No, why not? Just bomb them, you know, send the military out, take them out. Now, why don't we do that? We don't do that because it's wrong, okay? But it's effective. So why is it okay to just be effective to have offshore processing and just mentally torment people and leave them physically impaled in their own, you know, sort of problems and then say, well, we can't have medevac laws because, you know, by definition, the design of the system means that these things have to get treated. Uh, You know, it's not an ends justifies means argument. Public policy should never have ends justifying means. So if the government's argument is we need the system because it stops the boats, well, if you want to stop the boats, I can stop the boats instantly if you give me ownership and control of the military, I just think that I'll end up in jail as a war criminal.
0: But if you're not machine gunning them as they come across the water, what is the other
1: alternative? Well, then you have to cascade down from that, don't you? And, yes, it's not quite as stark and obvious as that to say intern them in offshore processing camps but it results over time in mental anguish and torment and all sorts of consequences that no doubt decades from now may well be seen the same way that the stolen generations get viewed or may well be seen the way a lot of these examples of history get viewed in decades to come. But it's not that far off in terms of consequences. You know, if, if you're locking up 100 people, okay, and if the percentages tell us that a massive number of those people suffer legitimate mental and physical ailments that last a lifetime afterwards – you're not that much better than if you'd done things that at the time would have been viewed as catastrophically inappropriate from a public policy perspective if they end up being – similarly catastrophically inappropriate decades gone by. The only difference is, is that you then got a minister in an aged care home if they're not being abused by the system. Of course, let's assume that our Royal Commission has fixed it up by then. But if they're sitting in some aged care home lamenting what happened, it doesn't make it any less bad. It just feels less bad because it's happened so long ago. It's a little bit like why we have massive reporting of one person who has been you know, killed in a car crash or in a, in a grisly murder but then somewhere deeper down the bulletin we find out that 300 people were slaughtered in Africa. You know, because of the distance we think it matters less. The same thing goes with the distance of time when it's in our backyard.
0: And hanging over all this, and this is the argument, the best argument to me emotionally for the Medivac bill as it currently exists remaining, is the death of of the young man, I think it's pronounced Hamad Kazai, who died from a cut in his foot. Mm. And And the coroner in Queensland had a look at that and was was just so full of condemnation for a process by which a healthy man in his 20s can get a cut on the foot. That develops into an infection, into septicemia. And by the time they've even got as far as Port Moresby, when all these requests for medical assistance are just being ignored, being passed down the line, being delayed, uh, that he was essentially, I mean, he, he died in... Queensland technically was a certificate mm. uh, which is why the coroner got to it in Queensland but he'd effectively become brain dead even by the time he got to Port Moresby. So a cut on the foot, um, the man was not able to get the kind of care that you'd think would be the barest, barest, barest minimum. When it was available, there's no lack of it, uh, it just required getting him to where that was and and uh, you know the, the thought that that happened under um, this government's watch, and uh, it deserves to be, um, you know, to, to hang over them, and they yeah. can't wash that one away. Um, on the other big legislative surprise, I guess, was uh, Pauline Hanson on the uh, union busting bill. Was it a
1: surprise, though?
0: Well, it's a surprise to Matthias Cormann, that's for bloody sure. Shouldn't have been a surprise. I
1: mean, she, she flip-flops with the best of them. She does, but has she made a big tactical error on this with her own base? I don't know, actually. That's a good question. She she obviously decided – well, firstly, we know she flip-flops a lot. She says she doesn't, but she does. Take that as a given. The other point is she's a populist, uh, almost unashamedly, and she saw – and this goes to your point, Hugh – she saw the opportunity to say, I'm going to link the banks and white-collar crime to this union-busting bill – and therefore she didn't support it in its current form because she wanted white-collar crime to be addressed as well. She saw that as a good populist move in the context of all the problems that the banks have had. Big shout-out to Westpac, by the way, since our last podcast. Things haven't gone swimmingly there. But it does go to the point that
0: these guys, like the Westpac chiefs, in their absolute perfidy... Have you know the the ripples that flow from this mm. go down to government legislation because you become so on the nose that the political process will stop doing things yeah. that would otherwise have done. Without the banks, would Pauline Hansen have rejected this union bill? No, I
1: don't think so. And to your point, whether she made a tactical blunder or not, only time will tell. I know that's a trite saying, but it, it will take time for us to tell because. Short-term, it looks like a good populist move. If you want to do that to the unions, I'm for it, but you've got to do it to white-collar criminals or white-collar potential criminals as well. That plays out as a good populist move if you think about it intuitively in the short-term, but I think your question, which I don't know the answer to, is does it in the long-term? Because maybe if she's simply not put in place measures that are necessary for the unions just because she would also like to see them for the banks, maybe she does cop it politically in the weeks, months, and years to come, if the unions do bad things, which they couldn't have or wouldn't have had that bill passed,
0: it's true. In Queensland, of course, the the One Nation's preference flows with the LNP and so on. That 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 we'll see how that goes when it comes down to the tin tax. Mm. We're almost out of time for this, and thank you, dear listener, for persisting with uh, with us, Angus Taylor. Those
1: who aren't off buying Combank shares,
0: yeah, <laughs> getting a million dollars on their house. Uh, PVO told me to do it. Um, Angus Taylor, no one, advice. no one, no <laughs> one, no one will fall across the line into their Christmas pud this year with more gratitude, bewilderment and sense of shell shock than Angus Taylor, surely. <laughs> what's what's his future in the government?
1: Oh, look, I mean, he he's dead, buried and cremated, irrespective of where everything does or doesn't land depending on what time and when people are listening to this podcast. Look, whether or not ultimately he has findings of any sort against him or whether he's cleared by a police investigation or not. Angus Taylor probably should have been sacked a long time ago. The fact that the PM hung on to him for as long as he did was really more about not wanting to be seen to be reacting to a Labor campaign and then a police investigation built off the back of a Labor request for one. I think most people in the government would be happy to see the back Of Angus Taylor, not just the ambitious types that would like to then fill the vacancies, the cascading vacancies that a cabinet minister fallen on his sword creates, but also just because he is so accident prone. I mean, at the end of the day, I I am a bit out on a limb on this one. I didn't think he should have to formally step down because of ministerial accountability standards. That's a whole podcast of itself as to why, but I don't, even though I think it was inappropriate that the prime minister rang Uh, the New South Wales Police Commissioner, even though I think Taylor probably should have already been sacked or been forced to resign because of using a forgery, irrespective of however that forgery came into his hands. But on the formal issue of whether he had to step aside during a police investigation, when that police investigation only happened because the opposition called for it, I find that problematic because then the opposition can start calling for them any which way, and if the police just simply institute any or some of them, then before you know it, you've got ministers falling like flies based not necessarily on outcomes but on process and a process that's kicked off by the opposition. So I've got a problem with that. But Taylor, I mean, he is just a train wreck of a minister, isn't he? Can I can I go to this? I noticed the Ipsos issues
0: monitor, as they call it, which basically asks people what is the biggest issue for them. And for the first time this week, the environment has come number one. It never has been before, ahead of cost of living, ahead of healthcare. So the environment is the number one issue at the moment. We know why. There are bushfires. There are other issues. But essentially that links to climate change Mm -hmm. because that's where where the links of the drought, of course, plays into this. Um, And that relates to emissions reduction. And that is the portfolio of Angus Taylor. So you've got the issue that is number one in Australia, so, we be, so we're so we being told, and it is essentially being presided over by the most demonstrably, let's be generous, <laughs> accident-prone, to use that phrase, minister that exists. There has to be surely a change in the new year.
1: Oh, and just to highlight my... Predictive skills. I'm pretty sure I wrote or said something a while back when Taylor first entered Parliament that this was a Prime Minister in waiting. So throw that one in the mix. Um, look, he has just been a profound disappointment. He was meant to be so good potentially with his private sector background, his Oxford education, his kind of JFK esque, you know, sort of look. You know, he seemed articulate, but as it turns out, he's just a, he's he's not a good performer to say the very least. And you're exactly right. I, mean, I guess this is where we're going to end, isn't it? How quickly can Scott Morrison have a reshuffle if he doesn't lose Angus Taylor? Because he's got to get him out of it. That's a fragile portfolio for any government. Climate change and emissions reduction and energy, it flips. Sometimes it's an issue that favours Labor. We've seen that in the past against Howard with Rudd. Sometimes it's an issue with Abbott versus Gillard, for example, where it goes the other way. It flips, and when it flips, it flips hard. And you need to have a safe pair of hands. And you won't often, Hugh, let me end on this. You won't often hear me compliment Greg Hunt um, because I, he, he's, he's not one of the most likeable members of the parliament, according to a lot of people in the parliament. But I tell you one thing he did well, both in opposition and in government. He didn't do well in dealing with the environment when he was the climate change spokesperson. Forget the facts there, you know, who, who cares about that? Politically speaking, he was absolutely crucial to winning the politics on climate change. Because he flipped and flopped. He knew how to manage it and he was not accident prone at all. Whereas Taylor, oh, my God, you know, every time he stands up at the dispatch box, you know, the photographers zero in on the prime minister to get the look, the eye roll, the concern, you know, because he knows anything can happen at this moment in time and it's most likely not to be good. Well, Merry Christmas, Angus Taylor, and uh, I'm sure he's a listener, isn't
0: it? I've got no doubt about that. As is the
1: West Bank. <laughs> he doesn't need to follow my financial advice because his background is one where that's where his acumen is. Maybe he'll go back to that.
0: He's been giving some advice on uh, tax-free <laughs> offshore islands <laughs> oh. as well as he has. Uh, look, I'll, you need to go because you've got to get all these bags into your uh, into your car and off to off to the Harbour View um, <laughs> PVO. Lovely to chat as always.
1: You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks.